0: This episode of the Cyclist magazine podcast is brought to you by Sportful, home of the Fiandra collection.
1: That's right. The
0: Fiandra is a no-nonsense
1: range that was developed on the cobbled of Flanders, where the variable weather can be as challenging
0: as the road you're riding on. Using valuable input from Sportful's Pro Riders, the likes of Peter Sagan and Paolo Bettini included. The Fiandra Collection mixes weatherproof technology with a performance fit for tough clothing that you can actually race in.
1: With everything from warmers to jackets, bib tights to gilets, the Fiandra Range will have you covered from head to toe, leaving you with no excuse not to
0: ride. Prices starting from £45, the Fiandra Range is available at all Sportful stockists. For more information on the Sportful Fiandra Range, click the link in the episode description below. Hello and welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast, brought to you in association with Sportful. I am Joe Robinson at the other end of the Zoom call yet again. James Spender,
1: when shall we meet again, Joe? When shall we sit in the same room again? Will we ever do that?
0: Probably not. On the White Cliffs of Dover, probably. And on today's episode is a Mister Jens. What we're not going to give him much of an introduction because he needs no introduction and. Our chat with him was so superb, we're in such a rush just to get into it. But before we do, James, we should probably run down some of the stuff we're liking and disliking in the world of cycling right now. James Pender,
1: how are you? Um, Been better, been worse. I've currently got my um, right leg up on a bongo underneath my table. You can't see that, of course. Because for you know, as far as you know, I'm naked from the waist down anyway, which is what happens on most of these calls. I injured it playing football, not a sport I'm particularly gifted at. You've told me that before. Yep. Yeah, hence the injury. Fifty-fifty ball got absolutely booted by uh, the opposition player, and now my leg has kind of swelled up from the knee down to about the size of a donner kebab spit. You know, yeah. when the guy reloads it on a Monday is morning it sweating after a busy weekend. In the weekend. It's not sweating in the same way, but I wish someone would come along with on those electric slicers and just shave it down. I feel like I'm carrying, I reckon I weigh more now, I'm carrying extra cankle pounds.
0: Do you reckon it's it's all just liquid? It will just dissipate eventually when the swelling goes down?
1: Well, it's one of two things, Joe. It's liquid or it's internal bleeding and we lose the leg. Wow. Where are you going to go from
0: that? Where are you going to go from that? No, we're not going to go. Where are we going to go from that? Hopefully it is just liquid. It's just like the liquid in the Donner kebab meat that's been pumped in to make it look juicier and more succulent.
1: This is a particularly disgusting conversation we're having. Um, on the good, you know, on the upside, life always has a silver lining. I brewed a cup of Earl Grey tea at half past one this afternoon. Uh, it's now 16.20, aka 4.20. Popped it in the microwave and it's pretty good. It's got a lot of scum on the top, lot of tannins on the top. Uh, I might have to brush my teeth straight away. But I've resurrected the Earl...
0: And I've got my leg on a bongo. And he's grateful for it. He's very grateful for it. How about you, my friend? How are you? I'm really good, mate. I'm, I'm good. Um, enjoyed Roubaix, which was ages ago now, but I'm still enjoying it. Um, been loving Squid Game on Netflix. Great series. Great series. Um, Korean. Uh, I've been. I've heard if you watch it dubbed, you get a different story as to if you watch it with subtitles. So take from that what you will. But that's a Netflix recommendation from the from me there. But apart from that, yeah, good. I've been doing a bit of riding. Um, the weather's turned, hasn't it? We've hit autumn. It's October. Halloween month, um, spooky. Pumpkin spice lattes, et cetera, et cetera. Ooh. Uh, the thing that I've been liking most recently is the newly released Specialized Crux. Ah, yes. Um brand new gravel bike it's not a gravel bike it's a cyclocross bike i will die on that hill uh and i will argue with specialized who are now calling it a gravel bike not a cyclocross bike um but i've been riding it and it's a very good bike james and you know what i really like about it is it's not over engineered Mm. it's actually harder to ride off-road than a lot of gravel bikes but in doing that it's actually a lot more fun So I think you'll agree with me, James. Part of the appeal of riding off-road, one, is the lack of traffic and the fact that you don't have to worry about, you know, being hit by a a sort of an E-class Mercedes or someone in their BMW M3. But also that it's quite challenging and at times can be quite scary because you don't know if you have the ability to ride on certain terrains and you have that sort of sense of freedom and fun. Am I right?
1: You are right. Yeah, you are right, yeah.
0: And I was going to say that A lot of gravel bikes being released at the moment are so well engineered that they sort of take away that sense of fun. They make a lot of these gravel roads, these single tracks, especially that we get in the UK, sort of too easy to the point where you have to go looking for mountain bike trails, which would then suggest you should probably buy a mountain bike.
1: Maybe, maybe yes, maybe yes. I mean, I could, I could really uh, get into this topic. Yeah, there's a lot to say. Uh, we could do a little spin-off pod. Basically, geometry um, off-road is huge, and what you've got there in the crux, I believe, is a bike that's got really very similar geometry to a road bike. A.K. As you say, it's a a, a cyclocross bike, right? Yes
0: cyclocross bikes or road bikes with fatter tyres that literally was the origination well this crux is the Athos, a bike that you loved when you reviewed it that's right a lightweight climbing bike but with provisions for 47 mil tyres basically
1: precisely so in the Athos, um someone can correct me but i'll just throw it out there i reckon it was 575 grams for the frame or something insanely light around Um, that yeah now the crux is uh, claimed seven hundred and fifty, I think, which is seven two five. 725. 725, Wow, there you go, which is obscenely light. That was like Cervelo R Series territory once upon a time, and everyone like everyone's jaws dropped then. Yeah, so I can kind of imagine how a bike like that would ride because it's going to be light, so it's going to be skippy. But it's also got those steep angles, so it is going to be a bit of a handful on trails. But that makes those trails way faster. Uh, what? Well, way more. Way more fun. So I'm totally with you. And uh, that kind of feeds into, you know, where I'm at with my cycling, Joe. Thanks for inquiring, which is I'm also on a new bike. Um, It's a 51 Assassin. I'm not sure if I love that name or if I think um, it comes out of a comic book that I read when I was, you know, 12. But I kind of like that also, too. Great font, by the way, 51. Nice one. And that's a bike with variable geometry, right? So you can change the fork um, rake, which affects the trail, and you can change the um, length of the chainstays by changing these little alloy inserts, which affects both things affect the wheelbase. So you can basically have a short wheelbase, short trail bike, which is kind of what the crux is. So that's fast handling, a.k.a. twitchy, and it's less stable, but it's incredibly nippy. Or you can flip it, and you can go long and slack, and that's great for loading up um, with luggage and going long distance. It's also really good. to sleep on a roundabout, etc. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's great for sleeping on roundabouts. You can pitch a tent off the back of this thing. But also, in the long slack, guys, you can really chuck it off stuff and it doesn't do that thing where it wants to jackknife like a shopping trolley off a skate ramp because you've got that longer um, – you basically you you've got a uh, longer steering axis, I think that's right. Well, basically, a long, longer trail and it takes more energy from the kind of like returning energy from the ground to knock the wheel out of line. Um, so, the bike is just more stable. You can ride it over neither stuff. So, suddenly it's like these two bikes in one, which I'm really loving.
0: That's, that's cool. That's, that's a cool, because don't get me wrong. I do, for example, I rode the Diverge, which is specialized other gravel offering, which is that sort of low and, low and long classic. Gravel, as we know it, they call it Hero Gravel at Specialized, and it's got a suspension for uh, the suspension stem. Sorry, the Future Shock, and um, and don't get me wrong, that's a lovely bike, and it makes riding over gravel sort of easy and comfortable. But sometimes you just want to go out for an hour and have a few heart stopping moments, and also go really fast. And this is what that Crux is doing for me right now.
1: Yeah, and also. And I'm, yeah, you know, I'm. It's going to. Take, I'm sticking my neck out here based on you know you, you telling me about it. Um, I I take every word you say as gospel, Joe. You should do. Yeah, I should do. Yeah, you'd be mindful. You'd be well to do. To do. Um, but it sounds very much like you stick some nice 700C racing wheels with 25 mil, 28 mil tires, 25 mil. What am I saying? Twenty eight guys. Come on, 25s are dead, dead to us. I, I put 19 mil tubs in, but yeah. Well, that's true. I mean, you probably ride cross on 19 mil tubs. But point is, it rather sounds like it would be an incredibly um, adept and hence, therefore, adaptable road bike, which I really like the sound of because pff, I'm staring down the barrel at having to have quite a lot of bikes in my flat all of a sudden for reasons I shan't go into. Um, I'm not getting divorced or anything like that. Um, I, but, yeah, anyway. So that's that's happening. And I don't know what I'm going to do. And I kind of think give me a bike that just does it all. That's kind of where I'm at now. I don't want all these bikes anymore. I'm over that. If one more if one more person tries to buy me an M plus one t-shirt because they hear I'm into bikes.
0: <laughs> it's up there with uh, Simon Warren's 100 Climbs book that I've got about 10 copies of it in the spare room. <laughs> Which is a great book, Simon Warren, if you're listening. It's really good. It's a great book, Simon. But yeah, no, it is a great book, but... I get it from every family member every Christmas because I like bikes. <laughs> uh, coincidentally, I think I've got it from the same family member more than once. So, but we won't—I won't bring that up with them. Are they
1: re-gifting it? Do they give you um, an inscription every time? Dear Joe, this is because I know you like bikes, and this has got a hundred things that bike cyclists might like. Exactly. That is exactly what they said, and it's the same same every year. Love Auntie Nan. Is she? Have you got? I bet you—you're you're the sort of person that's got an Auntie Nan in your family, aren't you? What do you mean, an Auntie Nan? I don't know, but like I don't know, people, people. Some people have them down Kent ways, I think yes, yeah, it's, it's like my auntie Nan. I mean, that's not a Kent accent.
0: Now I've got I've got my aunts, and I've got me nans. Never the twain shall meet. No, they were separate separate entities for me. Uh, is there anything that's not sort of getting you going at the moment, James? Well, Joe,
1: there's uh, there's one very uh, big issue in my life at the moment, and it is crime. So I don't know if anyone saw it. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't, but there was uh, a a gentleman, a pro cyclist by the name of Alexander Richardson, Alex Richardson, who rides for Alpecin, and he got his bike jacked off him by um, motor motor motorbike riding wise guys with machetes. Well, I say machetes, there was only one machete, but he was riding around Richmond Park, which is a big, old, famous cycling park in London, and in the middle of the afternoon and some chaps came up behind him. Chaps, that's far too nice. Some absolute complete um, scum of the earth types, although I'm sure they've got their own problems, whatever. Um, and took his bike um, on their mo- on their motorbikes, dragged him along for a hundred metres. He was still clinging to the thing. Um, and eventually kind of came to like, just wielded a 15 uh, inch machete at him. And at that point, he kind of went, Do you know what? I don't need this canyon in my life that much. And they took it. How absolutely bonkers is that?
0: Well, what's most insane about this is we've both ridden, ridden around Richmond Park a lot. Yeah. Um, it's incredibly busy all the time. There's never a time, there's never a point where Richmond Park isn't busy with other cyclists, cars, runners, um, just people out enjoying the park. So this was a broad daylight crime. This wasn't you know, on some like little country lane somewhere where no, there's not that much passing traffic. People would have seen the mopeds, seen number plates if there was any. I'm guessing they had their faces covered with balaclavas, but you know, people would have seen this happen. There will be witnesses. So the brazenness, the brazen act of these thieves to do this in broad daylight in a busy place is what's most startling for me.
1: Oh, yeah, I completely um, concur. And and this, you know, unfortunately, it's relatively right. Uh, a, a mate of mine, um, a, mate, a friend of a friend's girlfriend, how tenuous is that, was pushing her Brompton along and someone came on a, on a pedestrian footbridge, someone came along on their moped, grabbed it, slung it over their shoulder and moped it off. Like, in one sense, I'm kind of in awe of someone that can pick up uh, a nine kilo folding bicycle and sling it over their shoulder and drive off
0: on a moped. Was it Jeff <laughs> Tate's? I think it was those
1: people that used to come from the RAF and drive around the Blue Peter studio doing the Human Pyramid (laughs) on the back of a 125. (laughs) It may have been one of them. Um, And then, you know, closer to home, I had theft. I had a parcel left on my doormat. Um, I live in a block of flats, so we've got like a kind of entry door to the corridor, and then we've got all the doors for the flats. Um, Courier came in, left it on the doormat um, outside the actual flat door. I came back, where's this parcel, I asked my neighbours. Weirdly, one of my neighbours has CCTV, so she showed me it and lo and behold, some dudes uh, jimmy'd open the door um, with a, I don't know, whatever, like slid it through the lock and popped it open and took took my parcels straight off my doormat.
0: Oh, that's annoying. What was it? Can I ask what was in your parcels? Well, I had a kilo of coffee right. and some gold leggings. That's not the best haul that they'd have, have got that day. It's not. They've probably been expecting something a bit better. Just. <laughs> I just don't know what you do with that. Who are you sending a kilo of
1: coffee to? I'm gold leggings. You're going to Starbucks wearing your gold leggings. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a kilo of artisan coffee. Anyway, oh, sorry that. Uh, happened, mate. So and then and then I sent the um, footage to the Met Office. Right. To crescendo Dick. No, I mean to the weather people. I mean <laughs> <laughs> the <laughs> Metropolitan Police, not the Met <laughs> Office. Yeah, to crescendo Cressida, uh, Crescendo Dick herself. Um, and the guy said to me, uh, thank you very much for this, Mr. Spender. Um, I have reviewed it. Please could you use the following link to upload it? I'm unable to watch this on our computers at work because they're not powerful enough. I had to WhatsApp it to myself and watch it on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> what hope do we have well <laughs> <laughs> anyway they were very diligent the police were very diligent I got three phone calls and a visit oh well that's nice of them it is but there's a part of me that is a bit like it's it's rubbish you know it's totally rubbish I'm annoyed whatever but it's like go and find the guys that stole Alex Richardson's bike I just had pff, 25 quid worth of coffee and some gold leggings nicked off my doormat
0: well well I hope that they sort of turn up again for you they won't but I hope they will um on that note let's go from one man in uniform who hasn't got a computer powerful enough to play a video <laughs> to another man who used to wear uniform Jens Vocht was in the German army so we're just going to roll into that interview now because we talked to him about that we talked to him about the Berlin Wall we talked to him about life his small car that he used to drive from Germany to Italy, and also being a professional cyclist once upon a time. Um, It's a great interview, James. You'll agree with me in that that statement. I will So let's just roll into it now. The best way to start this one, Jens, is to ask you where in the world you are at the moment.
2: I am currently in London. um, And if I look out of the window of my hotel... I am just across the street from the South Thames College. So yeah, somewhere in the middle of London. So, so how comes you're in London at the moment, Jens? For uh, Trek Bicycles, they had a the shop opening in Better Seas. So we um, did that yesterday night. And later today, we're going to have a casual bike ride around Richmond Park. Oh, right. So
1: you're going around Richmond. Because I thought that today was going to be your new Forest Sport Eve. Or is that tomorrow?
2: That is tomorrow Saturday and then Sunday I do like a little fun time trial with the local cyclist team over there. I believe I go on a trike because I have a, a challenge athlete with me, so we're going to use the trike to ride together and how's how your evening
0: how was your evening in London? Did you get to see firstly did you get to see Battersea Power Station, which is the iconic four Towers power station in the middle of Battersea.
2: I saw that when we were coming in from London Heathrow. Um, I experienced some London traffic. <laughs> then we had a nice um, late lunch slash early dinner. So, yeah, I did see a little bit of London, but we have been here with the family two or three times. I saw a lot more of London than when we had a family holiday. Wow. And, and your family isn't just your average family. You've got,
1: am I right in saying six children?
2: Correct. Six children. Since we, were, since we live in a modern world, I like to add, we got all the six children together and it's my first and only wife. So it's no patchwork. It's not my second or third marriage. It's yeah. my one and only marriage and we have all the six together. <laughs> wow. What's the, what's the
1: uh, age span? When, when was the first and when was the last?
2: Uh, first one born is 95. I was only 23 years old when my wife told me she's pregnant. Of course, back then she was my girlfriend, now my wife. <laughs> Um, So it's 26 and 22 are the boys and the girls are 18. Very, very difficult in capital letters. Very difficult. (laughs) 18, Um, 16 and almost 14 and 10 years old. So it's 16 years in between. Wow. That's an interesting place to start a pro career because you're
1: 20, 23. And you've already got a kid going into starting your first pro contract in 97, which is quite unique for a cyclist. Normally, it's very much the other way around.
2: Yeah, it is. I, I was a late starter. Probably the highlight of my amateur cyclist life was the win of the overall World Cup in 94. Mm. I couldn't find a contract back then. Um, back then, we only had a Team Telecom. It's the only German team. And for whatever reason, they never wanted me. Looking back at it now, I am so glad I never joined Team Delecombe. Oh my God, can you imagine? So I'm happy I never touched that. And yeah, I just my first contract. And believe it or not, my first contract, I had a child already back then. Um, my first contract was a one-year deal for €17,200 per year before taxes. Ah. Not per month, per year. <laughs> so my 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 wife, legend as she is, she went... Listen, if you believe in this, then you go live in Southern France together with the other cyclists. And she took our son. We gave up our apartment. She moved back into her parents' house with our son. And I drove my little car, three bikes on the roof. And then, you know, microwave, sheets, silverware, you know, uh, my, uh, TV sets, my entire life, pillows, my entire life in that car driving down 1,200 miles to Southern France and lived with O'Grady and Hank Vogels for the first months or so until I found my own place with two other neo-professionals together. Wow. And was that uh, that when you signed for GAN? Yes, indeed. 98. 97 was a smaller half Czech uh, and half Australian team. Both sides had a sponsor for half a team, but both sides couldn't make an entire team. So they joined forces. Mm. And uh, so it was um, eight riders from Australia, seven riders from the Czech Republic and myself. So we were 16. And back then it was a second division team. That's how it was called back then. And my friends, that was the first time I met the Australians. And I have never been the same human since I met them. (laughs) I'm telling you, they show you things no human eye has ever seen before. And we are not made. To see these things, oh, <laughs> scarred for life, my friend. It must have been
0: pretty mental because Jens, it's worth noting that you were you were born in East Germany, right? Your childhood would have been uh, pre-Berlin Wall being knocked down. It would have been behind the, you know, in, in sort of a communist state. So how was that growing up to then being in the French Riviera as a bike racer with Australians and French people and... And people from all over the world, that's quite a, a change, isn't
2: it? it? It is a change. If you look at the, the wall coming down, it's now 30, 31 years back. This, how the wall came down, should be in every history book. Because people brought down a regime, a dictatorship, a socialist system. Not one single person got injured. Not one shot was fired. There was no police, no army. You know, it was fantastic how peaceful it all went because of the pressure on the street, the pressure of the people, the government had to give in. They, had, they only had the choice, we need to shoot 10,000 and shut the border or we just have to give in. And they decided, look, we don't want to be responsible for, you know, blood on the streets. They said, look, then we just give in. We, we're at the end of our past. And it's fantastic. It was history in the making. Because that must have been quite exci- exciting for you because you'd
0: have been like 19 at the time when the wall came down. So you'd have been like a, a, a teenager, an adult, turned into an adult, all these exciting things. I, is it true you did national service as well before the wall came down? So you had to do East German national service, didn't you?
2: So the the the, the wall came down in 89, which mm. is 20, uh, 32 years. Then we had one year where we didn't know where it goes until we got reunited. Yeah. So I, I was just uh, almost 18 in my last year of high school. The wall came down. My brother, he did start the military service in the East. Mm. The wall came down and he asked him if he wants to keep going at the new German army. And my brother went, look, I did swear like two years ago, the enemy is in the West. Now I just turn a cannon around, <laughs> pointing to my former friends. Look, that, now that's just stupid. Then I, I, I rather want to be out. I did the service in, in Western Germany. Okay. Did it involve any kind
1: of cycling? Because I'm I'm wondering how you got into um, into bikes because cycling wasn't a massive sport in, in Germany, I believe, at that time. And also bikes are expensive and stuff coming in and out of East Germany is obviously difficult to get hold of because of the way it comes from the West and the West is producing lots of things that kind of get stopped at the border. So how did, how did you get into cycling and what was your kind of first racing experience off the back of that
2: east germany they liked because of the political system they liked to show the superiority of the socialist system through the sport so every athlete was a government professional every athlete was called a diplomat in a training suit Mm. so east german government put lots of money into any olympic sport so um back in east germany the government paid for everything so I was a wild child, talked too much, moved too much, uh, did bounce off the walls. Um, so then uh, the teachers came to my parents and said, look, the boy needs to burn more energy. He needs to do some sport to make him calm. Um, so and then at about that time, the local cycling team, supported by the government, came past. I said, hey, kids, listen, here's a bike. I remember it like yesterday, brand new, shiny, silver, metallic. Mm. Whoever signs up this afternoon for our cycling team gets a bike like that. So, parents working class, we didn't have a car in the family. And, like, wow, I get a shiny new bike for mm. myself. Nothing that has been passed down by my older brother or that I would have to give to my younger sister. Just for me, an entire bicycle. I was stunned. <laughs> that bike meant freedom and independence to me. I could mm. see my friends without having to ask somebody for a ride or without having to take a bus anywhere. It was fantastic. So, I um, started training for about three weeks, did the first race, and ended up winning that race. Can wow. you imagine, 10-year-old boy, you get a brand-new bike, you train for two or three weeks, you win the first year. oh, This is awesome. This is the best ever. So I, I stuck with it. Um, I did my first race. Um, I was still nine years old. at the race with the 10-year-olds because there's no category for nine-year-olds. Mm. And I ended up winning, and I was super happy with that. So I always um, kept doing it. And because you were also quite a talented track and
0: field athlete as a kid, weren't you? You were quite a talented uh, distance runner or middle distance runner. was that right? That's correct. We had a lot of like
2: competitions between
0: schools. Because mm. obviously in East Germany, sort of middle distance was a, a massive sport for, for the country, wasn't it? In terms of the Olympics.
2: Yeah, we, we did have a few good, good uh, um, runners there at yeah, middle distance, like everything from 1,500 to 10,000. Mm. We had uh, quite a few uh, good ones. Um, yeah, I, I had a talent for that as well. Did some of these uh, mini Olympics we had, you know, like a mini Olympics of the, the county or of the state you live in. Mm. But um, then I had a fallout with the coach. We uh, trained for the long jump. And really, honestly, if there's one thing you cannot say about me is that I never give the best that I hold back. I Wherever I go, I give it all I have. And I, I tried to jump, but I didn't have enough explosive muscles. I just wasn't jumping far enough. And he believed I didn't try hard enough. I wasn't focused. And he made me run some punishment laps mm. on a stadium. And I said, nah, can't have this. I give everything I have. I get punished for it. And uh, so I, I never really went back to track and field. But yes, I believe Slightly different world, I would have been a middle distance runner, like 3,000-meter stable chase. Yeah. That was something I, I always uh, liked. Wow. And then if you go,
0: if you progress on from that a little bit and you, you've done your national service and you start to cycle more, you won the
2: Peace Race in 1994, didn't you? Uh, yes, the Peace Race was a massive event. Just a quick word uh, to my uh, national service. Um, people don't know, really, the German army is one of the most important and most loyal sponsors of German sports. Mm. If you look at the Olympics, almost hundred percent of the medals are sports soldiers. The army creates a special sports group at few different places in the south, in the middle, in the east of Germany. Where then, as an athlete, you do your normal three months basement training, then you get um, deployed to that special sports group. And you only do two days a month. Military service, the rest of the time, is free for you to train. So, And without that, German sport would be like Azerbaijan. We would win one bronze medal at the Olympics. Yeah. So the German Army is a really loyal sponsor for many, many, many years for German sports, for skiing, the bobsled, uh, um, running, track and field. A lot, a lot of all our top athletes. You were
0: part of that, weren't you? You were part of the, the special sports unit in the German army for what four
2: years, I believe, before you got your first sort of contract. Yes, indeed. I was four years uh, with the German army. So, yeah, I was massive. As you all know, us Germans, we did a lot of bad things to our neighboring countries in the Second World War. Mm. So in order to create some peace and, and trust in between the countries, Czechoslovakia and Poland and Germany, they created this race so people would learn to understand, hey, there are no monsters on the other side. They're just human beings. They want to raise their children and see them growing up. Um, it was a really good idea. And it was huge. We get a day of school when a peace race came to Berlin. So I was super proud and happy to win it one day. Even my dad, you know, proper East German, he goes, oh, you know what, Jens? all that to the front stuff of you that's nice but the peace race that is the best that you carry fantastic so so when when you got
1: to um moving in with stuart o'grady what was the racing like there what was the racing scene like compared to going to something like the peace race that's that's a big deal and you're probably very well supported by your by the state but racing for an actual team but on a low you know seventeen thousand euros a year how did that compare what was that racing like
2: uh, differently. Amateurs often race fast at the start until everybody's tired and the best one survives and wins. Mm-hmm. Professionals, they do a lot slower at the start. Not anymore these days, but when you came in. You know, we, I had Tour de France stage where we would do 50 kilometers side by side, talking until the race actually opened up. You had much more races, so you had less time to prepare for one specific race. You always had to be hovering between 100% of your shape and 90% as if you're an amateur you can start with 50 60 70 and build it up Mm. but as a professional especially me with my one-year contract on shit money i wanted to be ready so i trained super hard that winter and i did hit the ground running i was ready i was race ready in the training camp Mm. and to make sure i get another contract and hopefully a better contract so yeah, the intensity of racing a little more rules there were a little more fairness between the professionals they go listen I don't need to elbow you out of the road because we all work here. It's our working space and we all work next week again at any other race. While with amateurs, there was more throwing hooks. There was a little bit more open or dirty tactics, you can say, as a professional. There are certain rules you have to work with because we all want to keep working in this job for a few more years without crashing or killing ourselves. But it just went faster. I remember my first Peronese in 98. We had a team... Team Mappé. So we had Fandenbroek uh, winning the Prologue, mm. uh, Frank Fandenbroek. Frank then uh, Jalabé the next day, but Fandenbroek had the jersey. And then uh, it was eight rider teams. At every stage, Team Mappé just went straight to the front of the race, half of the road. They were working with five riders. Five, not four, five. Swapping off, they saved Tom Stales. He ended up winning another four stages. They saved Nico Martin as a Joker and Frank van der Broek in a yellow jersey. Five riders, they never asked for help. They never asked for any tactics. They just rode 40 kilometers an hour and like 20K to go, they went 45, 15K to go, 50, 10K to go, 55, 60, and Tom Seals won a sprint. They never asked for help or anything. I'm like, oh my God. And, And me swinging, swinging all on one long line. And if you take your head up to see what happens in front of you, your head gets in the wind. You get dropped like a bag of shizai. It was so frustrating. I'm like, I'm just about to give my license back and go. Look, I'm worthless. I, I, I'm never going to be a good rider. It was shocking. How how was that um, debut tour de France for
0: you? Because you made your tour debut in 1998. So that was you'd only. So that's technically your. That was your first year with Gann. Um, that must have been quite a baptism of fire. Then, as you just mentioned, it was. A fast race, obviously, famously won by Marco Pantani in a great battle with your compatriot Jan Ulrich. How how was
2: surviving that race for you? Well, lucky enough, I had back then, I had uh, Christopher Boardman in my teammate. If I'm allowed to pull his leg a little, uh, Christopher Miles MB Boardman, because he is an MB. He never likes to hear that. So, hey, Chris, this is for you, Mr. MB, member of the British Empire. So he was my teammate and team leader. And we started in Dublin, first time in Ireland, you know, uh, and my teammate wins the prologue in fashion. So first stage, we are in the yellow jersey in Tour de France. I couldn't have been happier than that, making it to the tour. But don't forget, there was a 98 tour with the Festina scandal. Mm. You know, like we had two days of peace and happiness in Ireland. Then we went across the... The, the channel uh, to friends. And then team Fastina got arrested every day, every second day, another team got in trouble. And so, you know, like from, Oh my God, my childhood dream comes true. I'm at the tour to go. Oh my God, this is such a nightmare. Like every day cars get stopped and raided and police were at hotels. So it, it, it was from super magnificent, my dream coming true to, Oh my god! I think I don't want to be part of this anymore.
0: Because you'd have you'd have been there, stage twelve, which was the infamous protest sit down protest. What was that like? Being like a, a almost a first year pro and seeing Marco Pantani sitting at the front of the road and the, what had just happened to Festina. How was how was that morning?
2: Well, we, we had like a few more semi protests, like stopping for a minute, then tried to stop. Other people wanted to keep racing. It, it, it was confusing. I was a neo pro. I only had a one-year contract. I'm like, look, uh, I just want to go to Paris and, and and forget about these. And like, I don't, it's, it's nuts. But it mm. also you think inside, you think, well, if Festina or other athletes uh, took drugs and they got caught, are we protesting for them or against them? Mm. And, you know, you look, I'm only here for six months, but are we actually protesting to protect these people? Why are we protesting to take them all out of the sport? Um, So uh, it was hard to make up your mind if you want to be part of the protest and what exactly your protest was for.
0: And you wouldn't have known that in 1998, you were about to start your first of 17 consecutive Tour de France's. You could have never, I guess you could have never imagined that, which is an incredible stat. Only one man, Sylvain Chavanel, has actually raced more Tour de France's than you. So that must have been quite a to go from that Neo Pro in that 1998 Tour to then 2014, which is a race that me and James remember well, because that was in the UK. So a bit, of, a bit of symmetry there with you being in the UK today. One of the last times you'd have been in London would have been that sort of final Tour de France you raced.
2: It was an entire circle, yes, uh, of a uh, circle of life. 17 years Tour de France. When I'm from East Germany, I turned pro. I said, okay, minimum goal is, I want to participate and finish one time Paris-Roubaix uh, and one time the Tour de France. Mm. That was my minimum goal. And um, yeah, I, I would have never dreamed of doing 17 Tour de Frances. If you, uh, I did the counting the other day. It's some 340, 45 stages I did in Tour de France in 17 years. That is, in other words, almost an entire year of my life. <laughs> I spent in the Tour de France, and these are not easy days. It's, it's like, is that something to be proud of, or is that plain stupid? Nah. Was that the grave of my youth, or is that something I should be proud of? It's, it's a small line between madness and uh, uh, greatness, I tell you. Well, yeah, I mean, if you sort of run the
1: numbers there, and your average stage being, I don't know, let's say 150 kilometers, then that's 55,000 kilometers just doing the Tour de France. So that's more than once around the world, bike racing at 40 plus kilometers an hour. That's incredible.
2: It is. And it it wasn't a walk in the park. I mean, I had a bunch of crashes, some easy lighter ones uh, where just the ego got hurt, but nothing else. and some bad ones. You know, 2009, the crash on the um, Petit Bernard, Mm. you know, as they fly me off in a helicopter, on live national TV, they announced, yeah, the chances for Mr. Folk to see the next morning are 50-50. And my children are watching. My wife is Mom. watching. The kids go, Mom, is Daddy going to die? You know, it, it was, uh, there were some tough moments there. Was that, was that your toughest, toughest moment, that, that crash in 2009? In terms of uh, injuries, yes. Um, mm-hmm. I, I had a bunch of broken bones. The, 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 the jaw and the cheekbone was broken. Um, they stitched me, uh, like three places in my face, both hands, um, at my shoulder. The worst there was I had a blood clot in my brain With that you just have to rest. You just have to let it rest and wait. Mm. There's no surgery possible for that. You just have to wait until your body heals and repairs. So I was eight weeks off the bike of any sport. My first training session was a five minute walk around the building of the clinic I was in. Mm. with a nurse at my side to make sure I'm okay. So, um, yeah, that was in terms of injury, that was the worst. And again, uh, my wife, the legend, she looked at me. She went, look, honey, you can imagine what I want after this, but I can see it's still burning in you. Mm. So I give you a carte blanche. You say you do what you want and I will support you. Ah. And I had I had five more good years as a pro after that. I needed that for my mind. See, I can only talk for myself. I can understand people, they go, that crash was a sign from above or a sign from destiny I should stop. I, I couldn't do this. I, I'm a firm believer of the ID. you hold your destiny in your hands. You shape your life mm. to the good or to the bad. If things turn to shizai, well, then it's most likely your fault. Mm. If things turn out great, well, it's most likely your fault as well that things turn out great. So I I needed that for my own peace of mind that I didn't give up after a crash that I want to decide now I want to stop. Not life or a freak accident decides for me, but I can only talk uh, for myself uh, in this matter.
0: And it's worth noting that in 2009, it wasn't like you were halfway through your career. You were 37, 38 by this point. So for a lot of people, would have, a lot of riders would have already been retired by that point. So for, the, for you to have the hunger to want to come back from that crash and continue racing, and you ended up racing until you were 43. That's quite uh, quite notable. As, as many would have just said, you know what, I'm 37, I've had a good career, maybe it's time to call it a day. That's quite impressive that you
2: managed to find that hunger to come back. Well, I, I was lucky enough to discover that my passion it's going to be my profession as well Mm. that I could make a living for my family and myself out of the stuff I love doing. So that helps to overcome bad periods or to overcome dark moments. Um, And I know myself um, or, or see retirement. If you're not an idiot, retirement doesn't come as a surprise. You see it coming. Your body slows down. Your mind doesn't want to do it anymore. So then you start talking to other people about retirement, how it is you prepare yourself for it, because there is this famous deep black hole you fall into after you stop mm-hmm. any sports or any, any public career, actor, singers, there's this big, big, deep hole and you got to prepare for this. Um, so I talked to other people and so many former athletes started to talk like, what if, if I could, you know, and like, I, I, I can't have this. If I stop too early, I will be a bitter man and I will be grumpy and I will be a worse father and a worse husband. So I made that deal with myself. I got I to gotta ride as long as I can to squeeze it all out of me until basically every cell of my body screams surrender. I had enough. I don't want any of this anymore. And also, psychium was a good way um, to release your demons in a controlled way. Like there... You got paid to hurt other people. Hmm. Imagine without cycling, I would have been like the main character of Grand Theft Auto, you know, <laughs> just running chaos and mayhem. So it was good that I had that I had this uh, this outlet, sport to go. I'm mad. I'm angry. I'm I'm ah, you know, and, and just hurt other people. And people love you for doing it. I'm like, oh, that was lucky. I wouldn't say it was a lifesaver, but it helped me to overcome. And now all these demons are out on the road. I the more out of me, and I'm a happy, happy father of six. Life is great, but cycling was good um, at periods to just release uh, some uh, permanent anger I would have sometimes.
1: So, where, where did that permanent anger kind of come from? And would you be one of those athletes who kind of psych themselves up and try to get angry before starting a stage or a race just to get that better performance from yourself?
2: Uh, people ask me about being in a, in a, in a lone breakaway. Yes, sometimes as a last desperate measure, you make yourself incredibly mad and angry. And it's negative energy. You cannot do it every weekend. And you can only do it for a certain amount of time because it does eat off your soul, right? And you don't want to give away too much of that. But it it is incredibly powerful if you find the right moment uh, to, to make this happen. You look at your competition as the arch enemy, it's like you go, this is, you know, life or death. You know, they never catch me alive. And it, it does work. It does work. You just can't do it every weekend because it's not healthy. But it, it, it does have... I don't know where it comes from that I sometimes had this anger. But it's good that um, I had such a long career.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You, you are known now as a pundit and also anyone that speaks to you. You're an incredibly happy, open person, which is almost at odds with the idea of being um, particularly a breakaway specialist. I'm not, I don't want to kind of like single him out, but someone like Steve Cummings to his friends is apparently a really fun guy, but, you know, to the camera and stuff, very serious. But you were not like that as a a racer. So how did you kind of separate those two states and how do you work yourself up into that angry state? And also how do you work yourself back down? Because it must be a big high to come back off and then go back into, you know, say a winter season and a civilian life with your family, but then ramp yourself back up into the heightened
2: state of being a competitive professional. It it does help to have a happy, strong family boundings. Mm. My parents, my brother, my sister, we are very close still to each other. My wife, the kids are the center of my life. It does help, you know, to be a normal human being, to have a happy family life, happy family background. Um, I think I just like to perform. I like to win. And it was a lot of hard work involved to get there because I certainly have talent, but my talents is I have a big, a big engine. I can suffer for a long time and I'm willing to go the long way to make it happen. I could never have beaten Kevin Dish in a sprint. I could have never beaten Bradley Wiggins in the TT or beat Alberto Contador on an uphill finish. So if I want to win, I got to do something else, right? Like my dad used to tell me, son, life gives you your set of cards and you have to play the best possible game with the cards you have. It does not help to be jealous. Yeah, but Cancellara got better cards than me or Alberto Contoro got better cards. You don't have these cards. You got to make the best game possible out of the cards you have. So you look at your cards. Okay, I got a big engine. I can go fast for a very long time and I want to win. What can I do with these cards I have? Mm. So, breakaways were my chance. Um, and honestly, I failed at least nine times out of ten. I got mm. caught. But, like Wayne Gretzky used to say, arguably, 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 how you say that? Arguably, yeah. Yep, that's the word. Thank you. The biggest hockey player of all time. Mm. He said, I missed 100% of the shots I never took. So, even if you took a lucky shot, nine out of ten, you, you missed. But you, you win one. That's better than zero. What is that going to do to your confidence? If you sit at the start line, go, I'm not trying to win. I'm going to be just filling up the numbers here. I'm just going to follow. That's not my life. I wanted to be sure, hey, I'm a force to be reckoned with. And if I'm at the race, people go, ah, he is there. Ah, I know where this is going. So, you know, I'd rather take a 10% chance of a win than a 0% chance.
0: However, was there ever a time you got in a breakaway and you instantly regretted it? Because I've, there's, you know, there are other breakaway artists, like likes of Thomas de Gent, Thomas Fokler, and you do see sometimes they attack and then realize nobody's gone with them and they have no choice but to be on their own for 200 kilometers. So was there ever a time where you thought
2: maybe today wasn't the day to, to attack? Yes and no. One time, now that you mentioned Thomas de Gent, I was, towards the end of my career, Thomas mm. de Gent was just the up-and-coming breakaway specialist. We end up in the breakaway, Perry Nice, and he dropped me. And like, oh, I think I have bitten off too much of the cake and I cannot chew it all down. He was just better. He was like 10, 15 years younger and he probably had a better winter. He was just clearly 5 to 10% better. I, there's nothing I could do. Not the smartest tactics would have helped me. He just dropped me square and fair, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's the moment where I like, uh, maybe I shouldn't have followed him. So that was the moment where you go, but then again, you know, like, uh, again, my, my dad used to say, son, be gracious, be grateful when you win. Stand tall when you lose. Just take it. Just mm-hmm. take it. He was better. There's, there's no, no sugar coating. He was just better. I couldn't make it. Point. So how, how do you plan? How
1: do you plan your breakaways? Because you know sometimes you're going to find yourself with a Thomas again, and you realize that you just don't have those legs. So there's tactics involved. It's not just blind faith. You're looking at the riders around you. How do you plan when to go? Um, How do you decide between you how fast to go, I suppose? And at what point
2: do you turn on each other and become each other's enemies? So see, a classic breakaway stage is three stages. Full gas to make the break. You cannot, in capital letters, you cannot think about later or the finish. Mm. you got to go all in to be in the break. And then you cross the next bridge when you come to it. That's the middle part where you become a fellowship. Mm. You work together. Neutral, friendly, share the work, try to be as efficient as you can. And then to the end, in the final, you become enemies again. That fellowship falls apart into a group of individuals trying to outsmart each other. Mm. Um, I learned that often the one that takes the initiative in the end first in a, in a manner like, yes, I do mean it like mm. this gets away because then they look at each other. Oh, if I chase him down now, you're gonna attack and I'm not gonna be able to follow. They look at each other and every second you look at each other and hesitate. It's a free second for the rider in front. Mm -hmm. So that that always helped. I uh, also I think many years I was simply the strongest in a break. So honestly many years I I didn't have too many doubts that I could drop the others. Yeah. Um, it went that far that sometimes I would go, why would you work with me? You know, would the mouse right temple with the snake no the mouse knows i'm gonna get eaten by the snake or what The rabbit work together with the fox hell no hmm. the fox is gonna eat the rabbit i'm like oh you you guys are a bunch of rabbits they're working with me i love it but i would not do it so when you watch a race when you
0: watch a race today do you do you get annoyed when breakaways don't work together do you as as someone who did so many during his career and had so many successful breaks when you're commentating these days and you see a break go up the road and 100 kilometers from the finish or 50k from the finish, they're already arguing. Does that frustrate you? Because you know that if they did cooperate, there's so much more of a chance of one of them winning.
2: Uh, yeah, they, at, at certain moments of the race, they have to work together. I had hmm. some breaks where it wouldn't work and I would go, listen guys, I'm going to attack you until we all fall off the bikes. I'm going to rein the day for all of us. You work hmm. with me or I'm going to be killing all of you, all of us, including myself. So, there's only two choices total destruction of this break, or you start working with me. Um, but normally, they're smart enough. They, they work together. And I must say, until last year, the last two years in cycling have been a, a, a trend, a tendency, fresh new faces, and long breakaways. I mean, who would have thought that Dylan van Baal? survives a 50-kilometer solo or one of these spring classics. I can't remember mm. the name. door of London, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, like that is unheard of in the last 10 years. Mm. Or like just in the welter uh, two weeks ago, Igor Bernal attacks with 50 or 60 kilometers to go. And the leader in the red jersey, Roglic, follows him. You look at each other, not their heads and work together. The leader and one of the strongest uh, or, or, um, competitors, they work together and they successfully manage to stay away. That is unheard of in the last years when Team Sky came in. They yeah. just killed all breakaways. Cycling was so controlled. I wouldn't say it's better or worse, It works just differently. And just two years ago, it starts the trend You know, with Matthew Thunderpool, Tom Pitcock, all these crazy young talents coming in. They just shake up the cycling world and it's fantastic to see. So there's more breakaways successful now than ever in the last years. The last time I remember a break like that was your was the
0: 2011 Tour de France, your teammate, Andy Schleck, when he attacked on the big Galibier stage and went for that long solo raid, ended up catching Maxi Montfort, but won that stage to the Galibier. That's the, in my head, is the last time I remember a, such a big sort of attack by a GC rider so far out.
2: It was epic. I was part of the team. And uh, yeah, Andy lost uh, time and um, I lost contact to the leaders. So we said, look, there's the plan. We hide for two days, we save energy, and then we go all in. We make it epic or we look stupid, but mm-hmm. we're going to put it all on the line on a GulliBA stage. And getting into it, um, one or two writers went, oh, I don't know about this, this is quite daring tactics. And O'Grady stood up and said, no, stop being little chicken. We saved energy two days for this. We all gave up our chance and breakaways and everything. we all ready, healthy professionals. We're going to stick to the plan. We're going to mm. make this happen. we all in this together. We all end up looking silly, or we all end up looking like heroes. And fortunately for us, it turned out to be an epic win for Andy Schleck. Mm. We had riders in each group. We made the race hard. We placed Andy here, attacked early, caught the first riders. Mm. They helped him to catch the next group of riders. We had somebody in there with Maxime Monk 4. The day worked out perfectly. And um, yeah, nice memories. Is that one of your best memories from the Tour de France? Uh, from the Tour de France, yes, that would be up there. Um, I think my best memory, Tour de France, is uh, the 2000, The year we won with Carlos Sastre. 2008. Yeah. So we, we, we ended up winning the GC with Sastre, the team competition, and it was one of the few occasions where we brought the entire team to Paris. Normally, you lose one, two, or three riders in, mm. in the Tour de France. We had all nine riders there. So we're standing there, this beautiful, sunny, Sunday afternoon on the Champs Elysees, on this extra large podium, color Sastre and yellow in the middle of us, all of us happy and healthy next to him, winning the Team GC, the entire world press ahead of us, and the Arc de Triomphe as the backdrop. And i like, guys, this is it. We should all retire now. It can never be better than this moment. It was magic. That's my memory ago. Yeah, that's what comes first to my mind. That moment, champs elysees the entire team, the band of brothers together, it was lovely. That was my best moment
1: at the tour. That evening, who carried who home?
2: Um, yeah, that's a good question. I don't think I have too many memories left there. It was, it was wild. I think, actually, it went way until the next day. Way into the morning <laughs> next day, of course. I mean, hey, Tour de France. Only time ever I won the to Tour de France with my teammate. It was, it was absolutely fantastic. We had a great tour. We had a super strong team. I believe the worst rider in that team was at least a one-time Tour de France stage winner. That was the weakest link in the team. And then mm-hmm. we had world champions, Olympic champions. It, it was awesome. The idea was everything just fall in line for us.
1: Amazing. I think that from a fan's point of view, one of my favorite moments that um, you you were a part of uh, was stage 16 um, on the Parasword, where in 2010, where he famously got, he crashed and he picked up a spectator's bike. This Was it even a kid's bike?
2: It was a part of a junior uh, motivation program. So it was, <laughs> yeah, a, a yellow kid's bike with toe clips and junior gears, 50 chain ring, 14 sprocket was the biggest gear the bike had. And it was about yeah, this size for Damiano Cunego. It was a kids bike <laughs> or a junior bike. So I did yeah, I did about 15, 15 miles on it, about twenty five kilometers. The rest of the downhill until then. Finally, my team realized: look, Jens does not need an, a new wheel; he needs an entire bike. So <laughs> um, then, when we left the valley, we turned left into the next climb. Um, they, the team car, we had Andy Schleck in yellow, so. Priorities. You got to protect the yellow. You got to protect the captain. Mm. So they, uh, they looked at the police officer who was regulating the traffic there. I said, Look, you look trustworthy. Here is the spare bike of Jens Fogg. Eventually, he will come down that valley. You got to give him this bike. It's his spare bike. And then as I approached this corner, um, and that police officer jumps onto the road and goes, Oh, Monsieur Fogg, Monsieur Fogg, votre vélo. So he passed me my original team bike. And I was on a little kid's bike for so long that my knees were aching when I went back on my normal bike. My normal bike felt like, oh, this is way too big. This cannot be my bike. Until then, five (laughs) minutes into it, my body realized, uh, yes, that's your original position. Um, Yeah. How many people can say they did the Tour de France, part of Tour de France on a kid's bike, a neutral (laughs) service kid's bike? With toe clips, you know?
1: <laughs> well that's it. It's like it's like Lewis Hamilton crashing his Formula One car and running into the car park and getting getting an Opel Astra.
2: Indeed, yes, indeed. There would be something like that. And actually, if I have the time, um, the day didn't finish there. Later that day, I experienced one of the biggest displays of fairness, loyalty, and sportsmanship. So I'm all alone, beat, beat up, bleeding, out of my elbow. Um, you know, just blood cover. There's a picture of it if you want to Google it and put it up in your podcast on your webpage. Jens yeah, Folk Jerry Kids bike. There's pictures of it. So I can prove it's not. It's a true story. So then I just keep riding along. I get my bike back. And I catch Mark Cavendish, uh, you know, uh, with uh, Team HTC back then. And Mark Cavendish was fast as the lightning in a sprint. But, of course, he hated the mountain. So I catch Mark Cavendish. He had three riders with him. The Australian Mark Rancho, the Austrian Bernie Eisel, and the German, Bert Grabsch. They were just there to make sure Kev, the one billion dollar bike rider back then, finishes in the time limit to be able to win in Paris a few days later. So they saw me coming. Bernie Eisel went, Jens, geez, you look like Shizai. <laughs> you know, like you're a beat up, I'm like, yeah, I am. I said, look, he goes, Bernie goes, Look, Jens, we're gonna go fast downhill if you can go ahead, drop us on the climb, we catch you on the descent. But I couldn't, I mean, I was, it was a bad crash. I was in a world of pain. So I, I couldn't really drop him that far. First corner down, they come flying past. And then they waited for me. So these three riders, they have been dropped to make sure my captain stays in the time limit. Mm. And they knew every second they wait for me, they make their own life a lot harder because they still have to catch the guppetto. But they never, they never yelled at me. They never told me to take a pull. Every corner, they stopped paddling, looked back, and waited for me. They beat up 40-year-old German, never been in the same team with them, but they figured we just can't leave him hanging here. They did not do it for the gallery. They did not do it for the TV cameras. Nobody was there. Nobody captured that story. They waited out of loyalty, respect, and sportsmanship. And then we reached the valley. They started swapping off. I was just hanging on, trying to survive on the wheel. They never asked me to pull. We caught Ropeno. So these four gentlemen saved my tour. They saved my day. Mm. It's a like, kind of like an untold story. But ever since, I love Mark Cavendish to pieces because he risked elimination of the, in the time limit by just waiting for me. So, you know, whatever people say, I love Cav to pieces amazing that's incredible
0: as such a such a that must have been such a special moment for you to get across that finish line at the end of that day then and just to be like i've made it
2: it was yeah it, it was and i think i had some uh, maybe not broken but cracked or whatever dislocated ribs couldn't breathe properly but i just made it to paris and i was incredibly proud and happy but yeah thanks to these four riders they they helped me they they made sure that i stay in a time limit and that i survived the day And on the opposite end of that
0: spectrum, something I wanted to ask you about was 2004 tour, where on stage 15 you were famously part of a breakaway, and in the group of GC riders, Jan Ulrich was attacking yellow jersey Lance Armstrong, which had put your team leader at the time at CSC Ivan Basso in problems, and you were asked to obviously drop back and support your teammate Ivan Basso as you were a CSC paid rider. Um, You then single handedly bridge. Basso back over to Ulrich. But then the next day you had an individual time trial on outdoors, which led you to have an
2: unpleasant experience
0: with the German fans. Is that
2: right? Yeah, probably is the darkest moment of my career. Like we had an individual time trial up Alps. So you cannot outright the disrespect spectators. us. They had time to run next to you and let you know exactly what they thought. I heard every swear word. Every animal name you could give, red, pig, betrayal, Judas. I heard it all. And I was actually getting ready. Okay. If somebody punches me, I'm going to stop and punch back. I, yeah. I'm, if somebody attacks me, I, I, I'm going to fight back. It's like it, it was unbelievable, negatively, and completely unfair. If I sign on a dotted line, my loyalty, I belong entirely to my friends, to my group of riders and what the fans didn't understand. At the national team, I worked loyal many years for our leader. I helped Jan Ulrich to win the Olympics 2000 in Sydney, four years ago. Even Jan Ulrich came out the day after said, listen, leave him in peace. He did his job. He's not on my team. It's not the national team. It's the Tour de France. So if he would have gotten away, we would have lost Ivan Basso on the podium. And we wanted Ivan Basso to be on the podium in the Tour. and So yes, I had to stop and wait and then it worked. And yes, it did fall in line with helping Lance Armstrong because he didn't have too many teammates left. So Lance was super happy to have somebody else there to help him chase. So it, it's just a coincidence in life that by helping my friend, captain, teammate, Ivan Basso, I helped Lance Armstrong as well. And I got so much uh, negative. It was almost like a witch hunt, mm. you know. And then uh, going up IPS, I said, look, there's two options now. I either crawl up in a fetus position, suck on my numb, or I'm gonna go out and tell the world how I feel. And mm. since I'm an outgoing person, I grabbed the first mic I could see. it. Say, "Listen, we gotta clear this out. This is not. This is not good. This is not. And uh, nobody deserves that. Because hey, I'm I'm a loyal person. If I say yes to something, that's what I do. And um, it did hurt me so badly. It still hurts to talk about it now. Wow. You know." Lance asked me twice to join his team. Um, apparently, he, he told me, look, you're the only person we asked twice. Normally, if they want to say no to us, we won't ask again. Mm-hmm. He asked me twice and twice said, look, Lance, you're a good writer and a good team and Tour de France winning, but you know, whatever happened, I, I don't want to be part of it. I, I'm sorry. I, I don't want to be part of that. You know The way to explain it in an easy way is uh, you two, you work at the same job, at the same office, you earn the same money. Mm-hmm. Suddenly next year, one of you two, buys a helicopter, your girlfriend drives a Bugatti, and you buy a huge house in Chelsea, still working at the same job. So the other one of you two goes, I don't know what it is, but this doesn't work. It just doesn't add up. You can't put the finger down what it is. But just by pure, you know, you go, no, no, I don't believe this. No, I just want to have a happy career. And whatever goes on, I don't want to be part of all of that.
1: Well, I mean, I haven't seen uh, Jade's car, which is uh, Joe's girlfriend, but I'm assuming I have seen Joe arriving at work in a helicopter and that has kind of rung alarm bells for me. Yeah, of course, you are just not <laughs> asking questions, right? <laughs> but as you say, though, you, you wanted a happy career. And, I th- yeah, I think that just from in, from any sporting point of view, your career has been a real happy thing to watch, a real joy to watch because it's been so long, because you've competed as such a, a gentleman with um, you know incredible manners, but also it's been really exciting. It's certainly nothing ever more than an exciting rider creating those breakaways, enlivening racing in a way that, yeah, has only recently just come back. But then also you kind of, you didn't just walk away from the sport at the end. You thought, I've got one more little thing I'd quite like to do. And he went and did the hour record, which had stood with uh, Andrej Sasenka. Uh, since 2000... Was it the early 2000s? So it'd been a long time. 2009, 2000. I believe. So this is five years, five years on. And you didn't just come out and beat his 49.7K. Uh, you smashed it. You broke the 50-kilometer uh, um, mark on a normal bicycle because obviously you have people like Tony Rominger uh, riding these uh, crazy position bicycles, super-fast bicycles back in the day, and they, they changed the rules of the record. So when did you start thinking... I've got the hour record in me. How did you train for it? And I guess what kind of mental reserves did you draw on from your road racing career to make that
2: 51.11 kilometre mark, which you set? I'm so glad actually you asked this uh, question. Um, I was lucky enough to have my wife. And back then we had two kids only. We went to England to see Chris Boardman doing the yeah. hour record as the last event. And I'm like, wow. That is fantastic. Like to see somebody saying goodbye to the sport in a, in a fashion like that. Mm. So I, I, I always loved that ID. And in my last uh, season, I could feel it's going to be my last season. So in the winter, my head didn't want to go anymore. So I did cut half an hour training off here and off there. And I went into the season not prepared. I get my head kicked in. And I was just mad at myself. So I figured this is not how I want to go out. Just disappearing into nowhere, like just like you know, fading away. And then I, I, I looked it up during tour of California. I figured, look, I think I should talk to the team and uh, you know, track bikes and like what do they think about it? because Cancellara had this project as well. And he's the boss. If he says, I want to go, <laughs> well, then I, I'm out. If Cancellara goes, look, I don't want to do it this year, then hey, I'm happy to jump in. Um, we did, uh, during perry roubaix we did some secret testing. They did fly me into uh, Roubaix. They got a nice brand new velodrome there. Mm. And we took a road bike, put a disc wheel in. I said, okay, Jens, just do 10 minutes, just do 20 minutes. We see how far, how fast you go. And then we, said, yeah, we figured, you know what? These numbers, they add up. It's possible for you. It's not easy. It's not a given, mm. but yes, it's, it's feasible so we produce a, a special bike that helps you, you know, frame, skin suit, all that. And then, yes. And we, we didn't tell anyone because we don't want anybody to be ahead. Right. Um, and then I uh, managed. Normally I wanted to do it the first weekend after the Tour de France, but then I, I managed to get into better shape and I made a tour team. Then we figured, okay, now change plans a little bit. We used the Tour of Utah, Tour of Colorado, Mm. Three weeks at altitude, we used it as like our last training block to do the big miles. And then I would fly to Switzerland. I would live a month on the track in Grenchen in Switzerland, mm. where the BMC factory is. Um, under the, the, the banks, the, the, the curve of the, of the track, they would have like little bed and breakfast, like a, almost like a used hostel. Mm. And I would live there for a month and just train twice a day, short but vicious like more or less full gas every day. Only short training sessions, an hour, and hour, 30 in the mornings, same in the afternoon, but a lot of speed work, power. The hardest session was I had to do six times eight minutes with race speed plus 5%. So basically full gas start into the red, six times eight minutes and only two minutes in between. So uh, after three of them, I'm like, uh, I'm done. I can't do this. And the team was like, look, Jens, come on, you're halfway there. You did three of the sessions. Push one more, then you're more than halfway through. You're going to finish this. Um, So, yeah, I I got myself in a pretty decent shape. I I probably, uh, I have to admit, for 43. It was the day after my 43rd birthday. I did the hour record, and I was super happy. Mm -hmm. Talking mental, it is the hardest event. It it really, it is. And uh, I always say, if, for example, my bike would have broken down, perhaps to go, I probably wouldn't have tried again. Mm. I never wanted to go into so much pain again. Like everything, you know, your butt is hurting, your elbows, your feet from tightening up the shoes so much, uh, your back, your your your, uh, your your neck from like keeping your head down. Everything was just hurting and burning um, in your body. And then the last left when you know you had it. It was the entire range of emotions. It was happiness that you never have to suffer again. You were incredibly proud that you made it, that you were on center stage entertaining the crowd one more time. But you were also incredibly sad because that's it. No more crowd for you. No more being super fit, being like the immortal uh, Yenzi, being the unbeatable, the breakaway Yenzi. You're back into the second row. You're back into a normal human being. Um, so it, it was all all of the emotions. And um I struggled in retirement with two things missing their camaraderie with the with the other writers and missing their superb fitness. You know how how high the fall is mm. from being world our record holder to these days you carry down your daughter the stairs and your knees don't hurt, you go, Oh, this is gonna be a good day. My back doesn't hurt in the mornings. That is such a crash down into reality. I suffered. I struggled with that for a long time to adapt. Okay, you're not to this material anymore. You're just a normal human being. Because for about 20 years time, I was paid to be not normal, to be not human, hmm. to be unbeatable, to be invulnerable. You know, uh, to be invincible. And um, now you go, oh, okay. My knee, my knees don't hurt. My back doesn't hurt. It's going to be a good day. That was hard to take. But apart from that, retirement is a great place.
1: <laughs> I remember hearing you, I think, um, on one of your first commentary gigs, um, having retired the following season, and you explaining that it was only kind of now that you realized that as a racer, you were like the animals that you and your daughter would go and see at the zoo. And now you are like the you know the customers at the zoo because you get to watch the animals racing. Was that... a that must have been an, a very strange place to be. To see, you know, your ex-colleagues. You're still kind of going to work, but you're not going to their office. But you're kind of running alongside their office. How did that kind of feel? Was that a difficult adjustment?
2: Uh, yes, it was because um, I, I was at the track team December training camp, like two months after, and mm. naturally, just want to sit on a writer's table, and you were just laughing. In a friendly room. uh, No, no, Jens. You're over there on the other table now. You're not a writer anymore. You sit with the masters, uh, the mechanics, the sport directors. uh, You sit on on that side now. Um, Yeah, it took a moment, like a little moment of irritation to realize. But I also must say, only now that I'm on the outside, I see how incredibly hard and demanding this sport is. I mean, honestly... Every single rider that makes it through a three-week stage race is pretty much a little hero. Everybody surviving the Vuelta, the Giro. It is an incredible task. It's almost inhuman how hard it is in the sun, in the rain, hailstorms, snow, sometimes in the Dolomites and in, in Giro Italia. These guys are tough as nails. You never realize when you're in there because you just live from day to day, from stage to stage. But now, if I sit on the outside, I see the last week of a Grand Tour, all these crash marks, disgust the scars they have on their elbows, and you go, oh my God, these poor kids. I feel like, oh no. And then you go, how did I ever survive one of them, let alone 17 Tour de It is incredible. I have so much more respect for every cyclist out there now that I see it from the other side. So
0: Jens, you've been an incredible guest today um and we like to end obviously you've you've got a big day ahead of you you've got a ride around richmond park and then you're heading to the new forest which by the way is a lovely part of the uk uh, it's 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 not quite the black forest in germany but it's it's a lovely part of the world and um, but before we go we do like to fire some quick fire questions at you just to get some understanding of what makes jen's work tipped so uh james if you want to kick us off with the first one
1: so you somehow managed to the, the entire interview so far without saying these words. Do you ever get bored of being asked to say shut up legs?
2: No, I'm not. I still love it. It makes me immortal in a small scale. Shut up legs will be there in 100 years time when I'm gone. So it's my little footsteps on a path of life.
1: <laughs> That's brilliant. Will you say it just one more time for me? I've always wanted to ask you to say this. Can you say it? Shut
0: up legs. Excellent. Um, who was... Of all of your teammates over your long, illustrious career, which one was the best on a night out? Oh, without any
2: doubts, you're the (laughs) Grady. The typical Australian. Indeed, my friend, indeed. (laughs) The man could drink like a fish drinks water. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Who was
1: the worst bike handler that you raced with, the guy that you just didn't want to get near?
2: Um, A guy called Daniel uh, Atienza. We called him scissors because he could cut the peloton in two like scissors. If you're in a crosswind, there was a massive fight not to get caught behind Atienza. Great, humble guy. Great climber. But, you know, with 55 kilos weight, you got no chance in a crosswind. So Atienza, he crashed himself. He crashed us a few times. He probably was. As I hate to say it, with all respect for him, he was a great climber. Great guy. But bike handling was not his forte. <laughs> who,
0: who was the scariest rider in the peloton when you raced? Who, who were you
2: most scared of annoying or pissing off? I think in my early years, Andre Schmiel. Until we had a fall, fallout, he like, uh, more or less for no reason, he pushed me uh, into the gutter. So I came back and started yelling and said, Andre, you want Perry Roubaix? You're such a good rider. It's 80 kilometers to the finish line. There's no reason to put me in the gutter for, for nothing. There's space for everyone. Just don't be an asshole. Don't be an idiot. I respect you. You're a great bike rider. I love you. I love the way you work, but just don't be an asshole to me. And once, since I stood up for myself, he respected me. Next day, he came back. Hey, Jens, good morning. How are you today? <laughs> so we were, I wouldn't say we became friends, but we, we respected each other. But it took me like, you know, just standing up for myself and going, Andre, there was just no reason to behave like this. Mm. Uh, But yeah, you didn't, you don't, did not want to make him angry at you. (laughs) Uh, What posters did you have on your wall as a kid? Um, John Kelly, multiple posters of John Kelly um, in the green jersey in the Tour de France. I had a picture, guilty pleasure, charge me uh, or whatever, judge me or not. I had a picture back in the days of Gert Jan with his long hair coming up, IPS pouring water over his body. It was just, I want to be like him. You know, no helmet, long hair, in the wind. He looked like a rock star, like a heavy metal rock star on the bike. Like, and the, 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 the PM kit matched super with the Café de Colombia mountain jersey back in the days. Uh, it was just, man, I want to be just like that. Apart from that, I'm a big animal and bird lover, so I had lots of birds of prey on my wall as a kid. Peregrine Falcons, Golden Eagles, lots of pictures like that. And um,
0: finally, if you hadn't been a cyclist, what would have Jens Vort been? Super easy.
2: I would have been the personal assistant of Sir Richard Edinburgh, working with Richard Edinburgh, making Planet Earth. I love his work. I love his expertise. I love his show. He is the man. I would be honoured to walk on the same path like him. Well, there we go. David, if you're listening,
1: give Jens a job.
0: So there we have it, James. Uh, dear listeners, Mr. Jens Vo- Voigt. Jens Voigt. Uh, depends who you ask. If you ask his father, um, John Voigt, it's Voigt. Or his stepsister, Angelina Jolie. But <laughs> it might be Voigt uh, or Voigt. It might be Voigt. It's also spelt V-O-I-G-T, not H-T,
1: which is how we once spelt it an entire article in Cyclist really? which is probably one of the worst typos we've ever done. And actually, do you know what? Testament to ends, he saw that QA and he and we were like, we're so sorry. he was like, that's fine. Lovely. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's the thing. that's why I've 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 not met him directly, um, but I've kind of like seen him speak um live, seen him on television a lot. And I've always just had a lot of respect for him because he is just one of those athletes who seemed to compete with a massive smile on his face all the time. You know, not not in the moment, like you're saying. He gets angry, you've got to get pumped and psyched to win. But the general approach to his sporting achievements was one of, I just do this because I love it. And I love the fact as well that his family also sort of clearly dig on it on some level and, you know, saying he had incredible support from his wife. The idea of packing up all of your worldly possessions into a tiny car and driving off when you've got... Did you say he had one or two children at that time?
0: Yeah, a child, yeah. Yeah, just incredible. So yeah, Uh, what a guy, what a guy. One thing that stood out from me in that interview, James, was the incident at the 2010 Tour de France uh, in which he uh, crashes and has to ride 15 kilometers beaten and bruised on a kid's bike and then he obviously told the story of how he got his other bike, his his other bike from the police officer, and then rode with Bernie Eyes or Bert Grausch, and Mark Cavendish and Mark Renshaw to the finish. So we were thinking about some incidences where riders or just athletes in general have battled through incredible injuries or crashes to reach the climax of a race. So the first one that came to me are two obvious ones: were Garant Thomas obviously fracturing his pelvis and completing a Tour de France, obviously um 2014 alberto contador crashing breaking his leg and still finishing a medium mountain stage is relatively impressive
1: relatively impressive yeah I'd say that's pretty
0: pretty impressive yeah yeah relatively um any for you there james
1: uh another leg break but not in cycling this time uh because you know there are other sports that are quite difficult one of them is golf isn't it tiger woods um won the 2008 us open uh, with a fractured tibia or something like that, which is pretty major for a, a
0: golfer, I think. You know, yeah, it's like uh, it's like a snooker player playing with a bad back, exactly. Which I reckon most of them do. Um, for me, some that stand out uh, is something we talk about before is something called Sherman's neck. Would you like to explain what Sherman's neck is?
1: Yeah, Sher- Sherman's neck. Sherman's neck is um, an affliction where basically the neck muscles in the back of your well, in your neck. Back of your head can't support the weight of your head, and it was first diagnosed uh, with a guy called. I want to say he was called Paul Shermer, but he wasn't Aussie. He? he was called uh, Michael Shermer, and so he was racing. So the first, so it was race across America or around to you and I, um, which first happened beginning of the eighties, I think. So the first edition was all right, it was just a couple of blokes they did it. Second one, um, Shermer returned and his neck muscles failed and he ended up having to prop up because this is this is the mad thing for two reasons he had to prop up his head with his hand cupping his chin with his hand and riding in a TT position because at that point it was so early in the in the ram kind of like the annals of ram history that they didn't have support vehicles and stuff yeah so he did it, <laughs> and it was called Sherman's neck, and it's happened a lot to long-distance um, cyclists since. But most recently, um, sometime in the 2000s, I think there's another guy uh, called Dan House um, who it happened to. And there's a really great picture that a lot of people have seen where his team have made this kind of rectangle out of poly pipe, the stuff that you stick together for plumbing, and then put a little chin strap from some hockey helmet and a belt, and basically put that um, contraption over his shoulders and then tighten the belt up, just to put up his head so he can see, because he's just completely, the, the back of his neck, is, and he rode like that for a thousand miles. Twice more than the Proclaimers were willing to walk. <laughs> Twice the distance, in fact.
0: Actually, no, they walked for 500 miles and would walk 500 more, so it is the distance that the Proclaimers walked. Ignore me.
1: Yeah, and I imagine that probably uh, Dan Howes was, was thinking that all the way through. It was just going over and over and over again in his head. But it did remind me of, um, and I'm going to get his name wrong, but I want to say it's Fienzo uh, Mangi, yeah. Yeah, who did a similar thing. Or it looks similar, it's kind of different, but he's got um, a famous picture of him with a uh, tubular kind of tied around uh, his handlebars. And he's got a cork. Or he's got something in his mouth he's basically biting onto that he's holding holding this um this the end of this tubular because he uh what did he do break his arm or he couldn't steer
0: he broke his collarbone
1: i oh, broke his collarbone that's right
0: yeah so he broke his collarbone during the giro d'italia uh and was in such immense pain and also couldn't steer that he tied the tubular to his handlebars so he could pull the handlebars to help him steer but also so he could bite the cork as a A way of alleviating the pain, probably with lots of brandy.
1: But that's right. He also um, famously cracked a tooth or teeth. He ground teeth. So he kind of injured himself through the injury because he's in so much pain cycling through that. And so yeah, these sorts of things are just absolutely incredible.
0: So I've I've got two examples for you, James, that don't come from the world of cycling that I think we should talk. I should tell you about because they are incredible. So have you ever heard of a man called Bert Troutman?
1: Bert Troutman, no, great name.
0: So Bert Troutman was a goalkeeper. Uh, during the 1940s, 50s, through to the 60s. Famously played over 500 games for Manchester City. Also, Matt was the manager of Burma and Pakistan later in his life. But (laughs) ignore that. Anyway, he played in the 1959, I'm going to say. No, 1956 FA Cup final for Manchester City uh, against Birmingham City. 17 minutes left of the match. He uh, sort of had an issue. He dived for the ball and collided with Birmingham City's Peter Murphy. He thought he was fine. He played on the rest of the match and they won 3-1. He won the FA Cup. As he's going up to get his medal, you can see that his neck's crooked to one side. Turns out he played the rest of that match with a broken neck. No way. (laughs) What? How could you how could you do uh, And also
1: don't neck uh, isn't I thought if you break your neck you're, you're kind of either like dead or paralyzed.
0: Yeah, we were told at school. You die. Like Achilles and his heel. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, no. Apparently he was fine. That's an incre- that's that is an incredible story. Quite impressive. Also impressive. Also impressive. He won the Iron Cross. Wow. He served. He had a military career in with Nazi Germany, which is, yeah, Not connected to his neck break in the FA Cup final, but Interesting, nonetheless. He was also appointed an OBE later in his life for promoting Anglo-German relations after the war.
1: Wow. Not bad. What an illustrious career! Well, how long, when did, he, how long did he live to ripe old age? Did he make a hundred? He sounds that like sort of bloke who made a hundred.
0: He made, made eighty nine. Died in two thousand and thirteen. No. Uh, living in Spain. Oh, that's fine. That's Good innings. Good innings. Um, but better than Bert. Well, not better than Bert. No one's <laughs> better than but Bert. The one, The one that's always stuck in my mind, James. From as you know, my career as a rugby player, as in my youth, um, was that of a man called Wayne Buck Shelford who is arguably the hardest man to have ever played rugby union, a sport for, let's be honest, the toughest of us. He was an incredible rugby player for the New Zealand All Blacks during the 80s and 90s. Really tough uh, back rower. And he infamously played in a game called the Battle of Nantes against France. Uh, it was a really aggressive, very violent game. Pre, well, Back in the day when you're allowed to stamp on people and to, to clear people out of the ruck by a sort of putting a boot to them, in the bottom of a ruck, a French player saw Wayne Shelford on the wrong side and decided to stamp on him. Uh, And in doing so, stamped on his groin. What happened was, during that stamp, Shelford's scrotum burst and ripped. And one of his testicles dropped out of the ripped scrotum. Is this really suitable, Jason? (laughs) Now... (laughs) Stay with me. Um, this was, you know, this predated the, the times of like rolling substitutions, which we have now, and and you know, player welfare. Shelford turned around to the medic, the team doctor, and said, "I'm not coming off the pitch." So what happened was Shelford was sat down pitchside and stitched up on the side of play, uh, and then just came back on.
1: Did he go on to sire any more children?
0: I, I don't know, but he did come off in the second half as he suffered from concussion that game as well. Um, so he was definitely in the wars. But yeah, Wayne Buck Shelford, that's... Uh...
1: that's, that's that. Yeah, that's one for history books. Well, I'm going to let us end on a, on a lighter note and I suggest that everybody Googles this story because it's one I just about remember. You won't because you were, uh, I don't know, about sort of like minus four years old, I think. But 1992 Barcelona Olympics. Uh, do you have you ever seen this picture of Derek Redmond? So he was um, in the kind of like Roger Black um, era of uh, British track and field? Yes and um, he pulled his hamstring um, very early on in the 400 meters race and was just obviously in pieces and in an incredible piece of sportsman well not not sportsmanship per se because he wasn't competing, but his father, Jim, barged onto the track. Uh, through the security and ran up to him. And c- quite brilliantly, Derek didn't actually know who it was. So he had to explain, <laughs> I am your dad. And he said, you don't have to do this. You don't have to do this, Derek. And he was just like, Dad, I've got to get to the end. And his dad supports him. It's just such a brilliant picture of just, I don't know, triumph and sadness just completely rolled into one, the pain on the guy's face. But they get him he finishes with the help of his dad, who carries him, literally carries him over the line. So... You know, let's, let's let's picture that as we go off to enjoy the rest of our weeks, as opposed to... Um, Wayne Buck Shelford. Yes, I don't even want to say the words.
0: Well, you know, that's one for you to research in your own time. Uh, but, listener, thanks again for listening, um, as that is what you do best. I hope you enjoyed today's <laughs> episode with the Yenzy. N- uh, if you did, make sure that you share it, like, subscribe, all that jazz Lindsay, our producer thank you very much for putting together this episode as ever
1: thank you very much Lindsay. uh and also if you're in the battersea area get down to the trek concept store which is the reason why uh yenzi was in in london
0: use that as the initial excuse but the real reason you'll be going there we all know is to see the power station it's a
1: beautiful power station isn't it? mad they used to have that right in the middle of london
0: who knew anyway james i'm going to let you go uh, as you're a busy man.
1: Very, always. Never too busy for you, Joe, but I've got things to do, so I'm going to say goodbye to you. So I'll
0: see you later, and I'll talk to you again soon. Later, mate. This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by Sportful, home of the Fiandra Collection. That's right. The Fiandra is a no-nonsense range that was
1: developed on the Cobbledbergs of Flanders, where the variable weather can be as challenging as the road
0: you're riding on. Using valuable input from Sportful's pro riders, the likes of Peter Sagan and Paolo Bettini included, the Fiandra collection mixes weatherproof technology with a performance fit for tough clothing that you can actually race in.
1: With everything from warmers to jackets, bib tights to gilets, the Fiandra range will have you covered from head to toe, leaving you
0: with no excuse not to ride. Prices starting from £45, the Fiandra range is available at all Sportful stockists. For more information on the Sportful Fiandra range, click the link in the episode description below.